with all the string and horn work on the new album, is there any chance you'll tour with a full orchestra in the future? <laughs> Only if this record does remarkably better than every other record. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Too Much of Not Enough, a Silverchair podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Hedger, and in this episode, we'll be talking about Silverchair's fourth album, Diorama, again. This episode, we'll be covering the rest of the songs on Diorama, tracks 7 through 11, as well as the reception to it and some other discussions around the album as a whole. Just to get some housekeeping out of the way, I want to again thank everyone who has been listening and supporting the show. If you want to spread the word, please share the content that I make on social media, Instagram at Silverchair Podcast and Facebook.com slash Silverchair Podcast, and also just tell people about it. There are still heaps of Silverchair fans out there who still don't know about the podcast and I need your help to alert them to what I'm doing before I run out of albums. So if a friend asks what new podcast they should be listening to during COVID, tell them this one. And of course, ranking and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or your app of choice if they have a ranking system really helps as well. All right, let's get to it. Part two of Diorama. I want to start this episode by talking about Daniel's lyrics on Diorama from a structural standpoint. Like I mentioned in the previous episode, he doesn't use rhymes all that often. He prefers to either repeat phrases for emphasis, which I'll talk about more in a bit, or rhyme words with themselves. So as we've mentioned in Across the Night, the only true rhyme is tired perspired. In The Greatest View, the only rhyme is finally I know and letting go. Without You has a few more, which maybe makes sense since it was written much earlier. Refusing to stay, cloudy day, scared, impaired. World Upon Your Shoulder has only one, save you, cross two. But what Daniel does use a lot of, just like we talked about in Tuna and the Brine, is alliteration and assonance. So aside from Tuna and the Brine, we have the O sounds in a close look at something so close in Too Much of Not Enough. There's also the I sounds in Brighten My Life Like, in Without You, just to name a couple of examples. What you find when you look at these is the scarcity of true rhymes means that, like I mentioned in Tuna and the Brine, when they do rhyme, they have a greater impact. For example, in Too Much of Not Enough, when Daniel sings Shallow Truth, Stolen Youth, it hits harder because it's pretty much the only rhyme in the song, apart from words that already rhyme with themselves, like saw fit, all seemed to fit. Then we have I'll open my heart, won't fall apart, so don't fall apart in my favorite thing, which is both one of the few rhymes in the song and an excellent example of something else Daniel does a lot on diorama, repeat phrases for emphasis. And I don't just mean repeating lines in the chorus, like in Love Your Life. I'm also talking about how in that song, Daniel repeats the line all by myself instead of rhyming that line with something else. He repeats it. In Too Much of Not Enough, the lines you never stop needing repeat when another writer might very well have a separate line to rhyme needing with feeding or whatever. And in that song, the song ends on you never stop needing repeating. But the idea gets resolution by finally adding to the idea with you never stop needing and it's good for nothing, 
repetition, repetition, and then a change. Impact. One last thing before we move on. Listen out for opposites in the lyrics on Diorama. The lyrical or poetic idea of opposites comes up quite a bit on the album. Got my fever down, waited up, breathe in the night, born again the day. You want no one, you got someone. Too much truth, lime lies. Even flinch against the fire, but this ain't winter, is in the same genre as this. Overall, Daniel's lyrics make me think of Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins, just a bit. Because Billy has this kind of famous quote, or at least it's famous to me, where he talks about writing lyrics, saying, Say you write a song about a chandelier, and the chandelier gives off light. The light is the colour red, and red reminds you of the colour you're not supposed to wear around a bull. So you name the song Cow. I have no idea if this is how Daniel writes lyrics, of course, but that's the impression I get, at least when I read his lyrics line by line. I think about lines like, You're the analyst, the fungus in my milk, and open the doors to my trust fund, my vestry, and spoiling my broth like a radio kid. They all sound like lines designed to be a mystery, coded in layers of association, like a lyrical six degrees of separation. Okay, let's move on. Well, it's the name of the podcast, so it's time to talk about Too Much of Not Enough. Now, for the record, the podcast is named that because I think it's the song title that best reflects how a lot of people feel about Silverchair. We got a lot, but not enough from the band. So thematically, it works as a title. So it's not my favorite Silverchair song, if that's what you were thinking. But it is on Diorama, so it's still a great one. In fact, I believe that if every song on Diorama was at the level of Too Much of Not Enough, it would still be very well regarded. The fact that I think there are better songs on the album does not diminish this one. Too Much of Not Enough splits the difference between the hard rock of The Lever and the acoustic power balladry of World Upon Your Shoulders, but I think that's one of its strengths. It prominently features the acoustic guitar in the verses and then introduces a distorted guitar as the song builds towards the chorus. You can hear a musical change at the When I Came Along part as the chords move from that acoustic riff to the A-flat G, A-flat C progression. To me, it sounds like a definite shift in the song, and I think that's partly because Daniel's melody introduces some accidental flat notes, that is, again, notes not in the key of the song, leading into this section. It's pretty cool, because not to get too technical, too late, but what he's doing is singing a B-flat against an A-flat chord, which means he's actually singing the suspended second note, briefly turning the chord into an A-flat sus2 chord. That's what gives it that off-putting sound as we come into the When I Came Along section. Anyway, these accidental notes actually foreshadow the key change that comes later in the song when we get to the chorus. But before that, we have the distorted guitars introduced via that little lick into the You Never Stop Needing part. So there's actually a key change coming into that chorus by way of an accidental B-flat in the vocal melody on the ing in Never Stop Needing. That note brings in the shift from the key of G to the key of E-flat. Taste. 
I love the bouncing riff under that chorus. It really provides a sense of movement. Then, coming out of the first chorus, that nice little piano break from Paul Mack covers the key change back into the verse. And you'd never know. However, that only happens for the first chorus. The second time around, that pre-chorus is actually slightly different, landing on a different chord, an A minor 7 instead of an A flat major. And Daniel is singing a different note, a D instead of that B flat. Listen to the difference. First chorus. Second chorus. In the second verse, there's some really nice understated lap steel guitar played by Michael Rose. Then later in the song, there's another key change, this time to the key of C major, to get into that blind white lies section. Gee, this song ended up having a lot of sections, didn't it? That change is covered by this sort of dive bomb effect on the guitar. It's not quite a dive bomb, but you hear what I mean, right? Coming out of that C major section, the blind white lies section, back into the UK much closer part, Daniel is doing some awesome shoegazy tremolo strumming. there is another key change coming out of that section. That part's also cool because what Daniel's playing with that tremolo strumming is actually the melody of the doo-doo-doos that come later in the song. Listen, compare what Daniel's playing here to this. So we touched on the structure of this song's lyrics earlier, But what is this song about lyrically? Well, I have to admit, I had never taken a close look at the lyrics of this song. And I got a bit of a shock when I realized Daniel is saying broken strings and stolen youth in that C major section. Is this song about how Daniel didn't get a childhood or a regular life? Is the you in the song a prospective love interest? You came much closer than they had before? Or is it darkly more about the media intrusion into Daniel's life? I've seen too much of not enough. He saw through his friends, his peers, and then his fans, the childhood he never got. Too much of not having a normal life and being forced to stay in school to quote unquote stay grounded when nothing could be less grounding than being a teenage rock star. It was already hard enough being, you know, partially forced into normality. You know, we weren't really allowed to leave school because everyone... Well, to remain grounded. I think this is a song about resentment at that whole time. I don't know, probably one of my, uh, or my favourite song in there would probably be uh, Love Your Life. Reason? Um, I just really like the feel of it and it's just nice to play. You don't know the truth and I love your life. You don't know the truth and I love your I was just sitting at my piano one night and before I know it, Love Your Life was a song and it's not like I sat down and said, I'm going to try and write something which is more poppy and melodic and sweet than I've ever written. It just came out and I sat back and listened to that song after I wrote it and couldn't believe that I just wrote it. In a way, I was really 
proud that I'd stretched that far, that I'd confused myself. <laughs> but in another way, I was, I was kind of, I was wondering whether I should go any further with it because it just seems so poppy to me. Even though Daniel mentioned Across the Night as the song that implies complexity, it's Love Your Life that really takes this idea to its logical end point. Check it. Love Your Life is in the key of C major. It's in 4-4 time, except for this weird 7-8 bar just before the chorus. And it's super duper poppy. It's the most pure pop thing the band would do to date. You could even argue it's more poppy than straight lines because it's in a much more traditionalist mold. It is quite literally the simplest bones on which you could build a song. But Daniel is such a genius with melody that A, you barely notice how simple it is, and B, it gives Van Dyke Park such fertile ground to plant his orchestrations in. It means he can go anywhere with it and build up and up on it without things becoming overpowered. Like I've mentioned, Van Dyke Parks was great at drawing out of the music themes that were already implicitly there from the start. Compare the Love Your Life demo, which was a B-side on the Across the Night single, to the final product. Demo? Final product. Here's another example, this time a bit subtler. Demo version. Final product. Van Dyke's arrangements in this song are just gorgeous, aren't they? I particularly love how his counter melody plays against the do do doos. favorite part of that song is the bridge, the flinch against the fire part, which almost implies a key change because it goes from that E flat major chord, which isn't a weird chord at all, but after two and a half minutes of C major and F major, seems like a big shift. In a way, this song is kind of built on the same chords as Tuna in the Brine. Again, this is yet another example of Daniel building up a song to a musical climax, and in Love Your Life, that is the frozen eyes are bound to melt part. The way the melody climbs, frozen eyes are bound, and then falls to melt, only to then rest for a beat, and then back into the do-do-do's, it's brilliant. Rising. Falling. Beat. One. It's exhilarating. There's another magic trick moment coming out of that final chorus proper into the more ad-libby, you don't know the truth parts. I feel like the song is just leveling up and up and we get that really fast drum feel from Ben and then Van Dyke Parks is rocking out with these quick arpeggios in the woodwinds. It's magic. Listen now for the drum feel. You don't know the truth. 
Woodwinds. Horns. Rip. And of course, those chromatic building final six notes of the song are to me iconic, as the kids say. It's why it's the final part of the intro to this podcast. The You Don't Know the Truth and I Love Your Life lyric came about. It was actually after a therapy session I'd had. I was just discussing it with a therapist. <laughs> it sounds so ridiculous, but I was just, I was discussing people who I thought were so unaware of the world and how things are working that they're so happy. I think people that are unaware of the truth sometimes can be happier. Lyrically, the song talks about how life is beautiful when you don't know, quote, the truth. So yes, it sounds uplifting in a way, but it's quite a dark idea and not a little condescending. Almost like how Daniel deliberately wrote Miss You Love to sound like a love song, even though it's really about hating being without love. As has become standard during this era of Daniel's lyrics, the verses have a lot of evocative imagery that is so opaque to pass, it's just poetry. Burn the fish plate, execute ill memories, labyrinth of sympathy, lime lies. I like that the lyrics seem to shift just as the song does in the flinch against the fire bridge part. The song goes from a happy major sound to that elusive E flat sound. Even though the chords there are also mostly major chords, the change sets off this different mood and the lyrics become less opaque and more straightforward. I'm content to be all by myself. And also frozen eyes are bound to melt. Is this a reference to crying? Or is it about breaking down the wall between the narrator and his subject? Melting the distance between them, showing them the truth. And no, I don't know why this song title has love spelled with a U instead of an O. If I was really reading into things, I might suggest it's to show that the love he's talking about in the song is a false love, that even the narrator knows he might be full of it. But I don't know about that one. I've always preferred the lever to One Way Mule. The other song in Drop B Tuning, the lever harkens back to the Frog Stomp Freak Show days, but only superficially. Sure, it's a heavy rock song placed just at the point in the album where you might start to doubt Silverchair will pull one of those songs again, but it's quite a bit more sophisticated than that. I actually really love the interplay between the guitar and the vocals in this song. The vocals follow the guitar riff a lot in this song, but it works. It happens at the bridge, the live your life part. It happens again in the main hook of the chorus. Maybe I'm on the lever is directly with the riff. And he does it again in the middle section. Turn the mirrors, face the wall. All singing along with the riff. Now this technique does not always work in songs, but boy does it here. It almost calls back to Israel's son, where the chorus riff would follow the vocal melody, which as I noted was a Black Sabbath thing. I think it helps that by now Daniel has assured us it's a definite choice to do this because he's demonstrated such a range of other songwriting techniques elsewhere on the album. Going back to that midsection, I love when it gets to that instrumental part with the horns going up chromatically into that final chorus. There's a nice clip in the making of Diorama Doc where David Bottrell is excitedly talking to Daniel about how good horn players can really be special. sure who arranged this horn part because Larry doesn't have a credit on this track while Daniel does. It's possible Daniel wrote the horn part on guitar and then someone transcribed it for horns. Anyway, also the horns in this section make the song rise above just another heavy rock song for the old fans. 
Same goes for that bizarre little guitar lick after the line, Programmed Computerized Minds. It always makes me think that this was Daniel's approximation of a computer sound. I'm not sure what the guitar effect is there, some kind of compression maybe, but it does not really sound digital. After all, the whole thesis of the album is that it's all analog. The lyrics to The Lever are vague in a great classic rock way. It's a much better who-knows-what-it-means approach to lyrics than some of Daniel's earlier work, because it's evocative rather than bland. I also have always thought that it sounds like he's saying, maybe I want to leave her, instead of maybe I'm on the lever. And while I am loath to interpret lyrics in a very literal way, considering Daniel's on-again, off-again relationship with Natalie Imbruglia at the time, I have to admit some of the lyrics on Diorama do seem to reflect relationship woes, just as Neon Ballroom's lyrics seem to reflect unrequited love and loneliness. Jeff Apter claims in his books on Silverchair that Daniel himself admitted that One Way Mule, Lever, and Too Much of Not Enough were in there just for the old fans and that they didn't, quote, fill his soul. That said, Jeff doesn't quote him directly about these songs, only that he mentioned that there was always a compromise when doing an album and that, quote, it's always there when you've got people who've supported you and bought your albums and gone to your shows. You have to say, here's a song for you. It's for the loyal people. Hopefully the other songs will challenge them. It's hard for bands to make the transition and still be taken seriously. But we were 14, and our fans were 14. We have to change. They've grown with our music, hopefully. End quote. Oh, and before we move on, I should just mention that intro to the lever, which, unlike the other little interlude parts on the album, seems to actually add something to the song. It's a sort of sound collage with a dissonant piano, the sound of footsteps, and a sense of something building. Then it sounds like all the air gets sucked out, and then the song starts. It's really effective. It was about exploring that notion that death and love can be romantic. I guess I've just always had an obsession with love and an obsession with death, so I combined the two and that's what came out. I don't know, I must have lit red candles that night I have to make a confession. I have never really loved my favourite thing as a song. Okay, that's not quite true. It's a good song. It just seems an odd fit with the rest of Diorama, especially considering the B-sides that we know were available to slot in here. I never felt that it fit with what the rest of the album was doing. It comes after the lever and before after all these years, almost begging to be forgotten. It is also one of the more standard acoustic ballady songs Silverchair ever did, really, which makes me think Daniel had an important reason for putting it on the album. It must mean something. In the creation of Diorama Documentary by Robert Hambling, there's a clip where Daniel is talking to John Watson about the issues Atlantic were having with the album so far, and Watson says that the normal A&R procedure would be to start with a big batch of songs and whittle it down to the ones that go on the album. And Daniel says, I cull early. Which makes me think that whatever my initial feelings on my favourite thing as a song are, it absolutely meant something for Daniel to put it on the album. And the album is almost a full hour long anyway. That's pretty long. Diorama could absolutely have just been a 10-track album. With all that said, uh, I was wrong. This song is amazing. And for the reasons I just talked about, probably the forgotten song on Diorama. So let's talk about it.
My favorite thing is really a beautiful, understated song that still does some really interesting things in the music. The song is in standard tuning, using fairly standard chords, in 6-8 time with a bar of 3-8 every so often, the refusal to shine bar, which I'm sure the band didn't know they were doing because playing it, it just feels like a half bar kind of thing. Sometimes when you write or play something, it just makes sense, but when you see it written out, it looks weird. Anyway, the song's main chord progression is actually very similar to the verse chord progression in Black Tangled Heart from Neon Ballroom. They both use a C major shape that walks the bass notes back and forth on the lowest string, and they both resolve to an E minor. The song has a fairly subtle vocal melody that rings a lot of effect out of accidental notes. By now you've heard me talk a lot about those on this album. Used well, they can really punctuate a melody. So for example, in the line, straight from the vines, the word straight is an accidental B flat and vine is an accidental C sharp. In the next verse, open my heart is the same. a great little melodic trick. And then in the chorus, the writ of favorite is an accidental G sharp, which again contrasts with the key that it's in, G major. And that whole phrase, my favorite thing, is sung against this E sus, E minor, C descending chord progression that is really beautiful. Yeah, the vocal melody is actually really sophisticated. At the line, So Don't Fall Apart, the song briefly takes off in a new direction before going back into the chorus. I'm not entirely sure how he does it because it's just landing again on that D slash F sharp chord that's appeared throughout the song. Maybe it's just that the note he's singing is a D, so he's singing the tonic chord tone, whereas every other time we've heard that chord, it's been against different notes in the melody. This is the first time the note he's singing is just a straight root D. However it works, it has such impact. That final love part at the end of the song is another highlight for me, where Daniel is singing that really high B flat, so another accidental note, not in key, against a B flat chord. That B flat accidental note has appeared in the song before, but lower. That is, this is the first time it's that big belly belt above the stave. Compare this to this. The note you're listening out for is And again, he's singing the root note of the chord, giving it that impact. In addition, the chord that leads into that love part is a G major. So it's going G major to B flat, a minor third shift, which might be what helps give it that gear change effect. Lyrically, we heard Daniel talk about how this song is about love and death. I don't know how to read this in any other way than what he says rather bluntly in the chorus. You're the one, so I'd die for your love. In a way, you could read it as someone being so happy they can die. 
and I feel like letting go. Conversely, you could read it as a very sad song about someone who wants to die despite the love they have. Yikes. But he also has that line, open my heart, won't fall apart, so don't fall apart. That sounds like codependence. As far as I can tell, this song was never really played live. They played it at the Diorama album launch for Triple J, and then there's also a performance that Daniel and Julian Hamilton, their then touring keyboardist, did live for Nova FM, which is pretty funny to think about if you know that radio station and what they usually play. The early 2000s were a weird and wonderful time. Favourite thing of the new record... Okay, so before we get to the final track of Diorama, I want to take a moment to talk about Daniel's singing voice. Daniel's voice had definitely grown and improved since Neon Ballroom, but for Diorama he was writing these new songs that weren't, this time around, necessarily rock songs anymore, but his vocal instrument was still a rock instrument. He had to learn to adapt his voice from the rock grit that he had always had and deployed up through Neon Ballroom. But with Diorama, he was writing things, writing melodies that just cannot be achieved in a rock vocal style. Actually, it works both ways. He was experimenting with his falsetto singing, which made the melodies he could perform go out of the stratosphere, or at least out of his regular range. And he was also wanting to write melodies that required a different style of singing. Side note, I had a whole thing written analyzing his vocals from like a classical singing perspective, but it just ended up sounding like I was being overly critical. I'll just say that some of his vocal choices would have translated better in a live setting had he taken better care of his instrument and had at least some technical training to maintain vocal health. So on Diorama, Daniel introduced a lot more falsetto singing in his singing style. There are a couple of times he does this on Neon Ballroom, but on Diorama, he really started to use it a lot. In addition, as much as people thought he was expanding his range on Neon Ballroom, on Diorama, his vocal range actually has expanded. On Diorama, he's belting these high B-flats above the stave, and he's really going for it with his vocal choices. When Kevin Williamson from Atlantic says in the creation of Diorama documentary that Love Your Life doesn't sound like it's Daniel singing, he's half right. I don't think Daniel ever stopped sounding like himself, but it was something of a departure. Daniel's voice had progressed so much that maybe people took a while to get used to it. But I think that's a good thing. His voice was now the weapon that I mentioned in the very first episode of this podcast. Daniel does adapt his voice to the style of song on Diorama, and I think he really did try to grow his instrument. If you listen to how he sings on, for example, My Favourite Thing, to how he sings on The Lever, to name two examples, he's using completely different vocal styles. And maybe the biggest compliment I can give him is that as much as his voice developed and progressed over the albums, you know, he literally grew up and into his voice over this time after all, his voice was still recognisably him. Anything that veered too far away from that might have been disastrous, and it was a delicate balance to strike. Okay, let's move on. Yeah, I think... After all these years, it's the perfect closer to the record because it lands you somewhere peaceful and comfortable and tranquil. And if you look at the album as a journey, everything is strategically placed to make you feel like you've just been somewhere magical and you end up at a place where you would never expect to end up on a silver chair record. And um, I think that can only be a good thing. One of the most straightforward lyrics that Daniel ever wrote, even though it has its fair share of opaque lines, 
after all these years, can't help but feel like Daniel is speaking directly to the fans and maybe even to the media as well. I know I've been unwell, but I'm past that now. I have a better perspective now. I can move on, and you should too. The terrible irony, of course, was that as this album was being completed, Daniel was in the early stages of reactive arthritis. His battles were not even nearly over. Straight Up, After All These Years is a beautiful song. Just Daniel and a piano and some extra strings thrown in too. And it is Daniel playing piano on this track. In the Great Australian Albums doc, Daniel mentions that this song uses a technique he attributes to the Beatles, where the piano chords get heavier each time. Once you know he's doing this, you can hear it elsewhere in his music as well, particularly on the song it most resembles sonically, the B-side Asylum. Speaking of which, I should actually hate After All These Years because it's undeniably the song that kept Asylum off the album. The only way to have both of those songs on the album would be to have one of them open and one of them close. But I get why After All These Years is on this album. It's such a summation of not only this album, but Silverchair's career and cultural footprint to date. It's a really positive summary of the journey from the start to the end of the writing process for that, for that record. It just feels really like there's no there's no hinting at the escapism, and uh, it's it's really the first like you know John Lennon inspired kind of balls on the table uh, kind of lyric on the record. So you, to me, it takes people through a really emotional and sometimes surreal journey lyrically, but come back comes back to the end and it's really literal and uh, it's all about it's just a really positive honest summary of the record and I think a nice invitation to the next one. Also in that great Australian albums doc Daniel listens to the extra harmonies that they ended up leaving off the final mix. They are beautiful but it was a smart choice to leave them out. You don't want to cloud the message of this song of all the songs on Diorama you want Daniel's voice to be as unobscured and direct as possible. I keep coming back to that word, don't I? Direct. I wouldn't describe much of Silverchair's music as direct, but after all these years, definitely is. At least lyrically. I mean, it takes some artists a whole career just to write a line as simple and heartfelt as, all those years, I was hurting to feel something more than life. And what a line to close the album. I think it was one of those songs, lyrically, for Dan, that was just like, you know, hard on his sleeve, bang, this is my story, you know, and I, I love honesty in music, I love honesty in vocals and honesty in lyrics and, you know, that's pretty honest, that song, and it's like, good on you, dude, you made it. Musically, after all these years, sounds simple, but structurally it's quite intricate. This is obviously a theme with Daniel's writing now, simple songs that sound complex and complex sounds that sound simple. There's actually footage in the creation of Diorama documentary of Daniel sitting at a piano with David Bottrell and the two of them trying to work out which pieces of the song go where. For something that sounds so effortless, a lot of work was put into making it sound that way. Before the second verse, and it comes before the third verse. 
That's correct. You see, I've found a way to counter the argument. Very good. Shift in perspective <laughs> of what it is. The chords in this song are constantly moving underneath the vocal melody, which is one way you can tell it's written on a piano. As I think I've mentioned, it's easy to move chords around and add and subtract sevenths and ninths, etc. on piano than it is on guitar. Mending my sleep, I'm boxing underwater, waddle on the wake, waking on the After all these years, changes keys four times before we get to the chorus, shifting back and forth between A and F sharp during the verses, and then the chorus is in D flat. One way those key changes sound so natural is that most likely Daniel didn't know he was doing it and intuitively made it work melodically. For example, again, he sings a bunch of accidental notes to bridge the end of the verse to the chorus so you don't even realize there's a key change happening. I guess that's technically called a modulation because he's covering up the key change through a series of notes that gradually move from one key to the next. So at the summer's day part, at the end of the first verse, the melody for day has moved into the next key already before it officially starts with that big D flat chord. And while all this is happening, you've got short sections where the time signature changes from 4-4 to 2-4 or 3-4. But of course, none of this sounds jarring and that's the point. It washes over you and makes you feel like you've reached a positive place. The lyrics of After All These Years are poetic and specific without being clear, another trait of Diorama and Daniel's lyrics in general. We get a sense that we know what the lyrics mean, but on a line-by-line basis, it's hard to pass. This song originally had the slightly different lyric and presumably title After All Those Years, which we briefly hear in the Making of Diorama documentary. We also hear that the mention of a laptop souvenir in the first verse was originally Downloaded Souvenir which would have aged even worse than the slightly outdated laptop lyric. The line, munificent, artless and ascetic, playing like a scared, enthusiastic pawn, sounds to me like a self-description. The word munificent refers to generosity, So paired with the idea of being artless, in this context meaning open, and ascetic meaning self-denying, I think it's clear that Daniel is talking about himself. He's generous and open because of how much he shares with his music. He's held nothing back. But he's also beholden to his audience, whom he plays for, enthusiastically, like a scared enthusiastic pawn. In that context, I do wonder whether the line, son, you'll be home again and I'll be whole again, might be a reference to touring. The line that pairs with it in the second verse is, every father's pain casts a shadow over a broken son. That is a really nice lyric, by the way. Daniel's not a father, and he probably doesn't literally mean father, but he gets at something about the fear of passing on something within you to your children or to other people who are influenced by you maybe in the context of this song, his fans. So with that in mind, it might mean he hopes his troubled times haven't negatively affected the people he has influence over, his fans. And that's who this song is for. But only partly. This also sounds like a plea to his loved ones, his family and friends, maybe even his bandmates. The line that makes the song, for me at least, is, All those years I was hurting to feel something more than life. Despite the uplifting feel of the song, the final line to me implies a sadness that maybe he has given up trying to find what he was looking for. What is a feeling that's more than life? Does it mean that life or his life has been so painful that all this soul searching and depression and eating disorders and so on were attempts to escape existence and to reach a level that was somehow 
beyond life? It's a brilliant line to end on because it's both hopeful and ambiguous. As always, Daniel makes things opaque even when he's speaking clearly to us. And then the album's over, sort of. After four minutes of silence, we get this. For anyone under 30, ask your grandparents about secret tracks. They were all the rage in the 90s and early 2000s. In the streaming age, that don't make sense. This secret track, this little piano piece, is pretty, but I'm not sure if it's a better ending to the album than the end of After All These Years. It does sort of make a nice pairing with the interlude at the end of Without You, which I didn't mention last episode, as well as the orchestral outro at the end of Across the Night, but I think these ultimately are a bit of filler and don't really tie the album together like they might have been intended to. I could also mention the intro to The Lever, but as I mentioned, there I think it actually adds to the song rather than detracts from it. I think there were actually a couple more of these planned for the album, but Diorama was already pushing an hour, and adding little bibs and bobs in between songs was probably a bridge too far, and they were wisely removed, in my opinion. I think I did go mad for Diorama. I legitimately did go mad. I was agoraphobic. I didn't leave the house for eight months. I broke up with my girlfriend, who I was deeply in love with, just because I thought it was ruining my music. I was too happy. I was going a bit mad, smoking too much pot. Diorama is a work of genius, but it came at a cost. As I've mentioned, while mixing the album in LA, Daniel's knee started to swell up. What eventually followed was a diagnosis of reactive arthritis, a form of arthritis that particularly affects young men. While Daniel probably wasn't the healthiest person to begin with, the stress from making Diorama, not to mention the clashes with Atlantic, probably contributed to his getting sick. Daniel's being sick meant that the band couldn't do as much press as they usually would to promote the album, and it especially meant that they couldn't tour. The record was made over the course of 2001, right at the end of that year. You know, a moment right at the very end of the mixing of the record where all of a sudden Daniel's got a swollen joint and everybody's sort of laughing about it, thinking it's very funny, and it's this really eerie kind of precursor to what's about to happen. If he was sitting on a couch and somebody sat down the other end of the couch, it would make him scream with pain. Diorama was released March 31, 2002 in Australia and debuted at number one on the ARIA chart, the band's fourth straight album to debut at number one. It eventually went triple platinum in Australia and won five ARIA awards. I'll talk about the ARIAs in a minute. Four of Diorama's tracks also made it onto Triple J's annual Hottest 100 list. Without You at 25, Love Your Life at 35, Across the Night at 62, and World Upon Your Shoulders at 76, which wasn't even a single. The reviews of the album at home were very good. The Daily Telegraph called Diorama the most ambitious, glorious piece of music ever by an Australian artist. Similarly, the Herald Sun said that the album was the most accomplished and special Silverchair album, a personal masterpiece, simply intoxicating. Old mate Jeff Apter actually did the review for Rolling Stone Australia, saying, Diorama is one of the boldest statements ever made by an Australian rock band. Juice magazine said, Silverchair's previous albums only hint at the melodic sophistication of this album. As a side note, it's interesting to reflect, after almost 20 years, on the media landscape at the time. Just listing those outlets, they're all very mainstream, aside from some dedicated music publications, they're national or state-based newspapers, general interest magazines, and some street press. Contrast that to what the situation would be now, where it would be ever more fractured niche publications and specialty websites reviewing the album, often by people who were already invested in it. It's something that my guest Richard S. He brought up in our discussion on this podcast. These days, artists are often being covered by their fans for their blogs or video series. 
People who aren't inclined to like a band or an album just aren't presented with an opportunity to have their opinion printed, which is good and bad. Good because it means that the music is going to the people who will actually appreciate it, but it also means a wider audience don't get to even hear about it. But you do have to think that if Silverchair were starting out as a band now, they wouldn't have to run through the media gauntlet they did when they were still together. Internationally, things were not so good for Diorama. In New Zealand, it peaked at number 7, not bad, but numbers like 116 in France and 91 on the US Billboard chart reflected the general theme overseas. This was mostly because of the issues we just discussed. No international interviews, no tours. This is despite Silverchair now residing directly on an American label. But Daniel's illness delayed the release of Diorama in the States until August, after already being pushed back from June. By then, the momentum had died. Their next best shot of reintroducing themselves as a grown-up band had been wiped out. The UK's enemy were just brutal about the album, and oh my god, what is wrong with the British music press? The enemy review somehow compared Silverchair to Brian Adams, calling Diorama overproduced Aussie rock. Hmm, I wonder whether this writer will make a reference to the band's age. Ah, here it is. Quote, They think they're making grand and mature artistic statements, but it just sounds like they're trying to impress their parents. Hey, James Jam, fuck you. 18 years late, but oh well. US Rolling Stones review was a bit better, with critic Mark Kemp praising the album's heavy orchestration, unpredictable melodic shifts, and a whimsical pop sensibility. But even he couldn't resist deriding the chorus of Without You, saying it, quote, relies on a pseudo-dramatic MTV-approved hook. Can you imagine an album review getting canned for being catchy these days? It's unfortunate that Silverchair just missed the poptimist wave of criticism that would have praised this album for its hooks, rather than deriding it. And so, the album that was meant to reintroduce the band to America, complete with its shiny new American record label, went bust. The best album of the band's career was either dismissed, or worse, insulted for daring to make an artistic statement. The singles from Diorama were The Greatest View, Without You, Love Your Life, After All These Years, and Across the Night. None of them made enough impact overseas for Atlantic to keep them on the label. Although I believe they did distribute Young Modern, after the dismal fate of Diorama, Silverchair were no longer an Atlantic Records band. The story has a happy ending, at least in Australia. If you're an Australian Silverchair fan of a certain age, the performance of The Greatest View that Silverchair did at the 2002 ARIA Awards in October 2002 was a pivotal moment. It was the first time the band had performed in many months, and Daniel was still suffering from reactive arthritis. The performance even helped turn around sales of Diorama in Australia. That night, the band took home awards for Album of the Year, Best Group, Best Rock Album, Producer of the Year, Engineer of the Year, and Best Cover Art. They also took home the Channel V Oz Artist of the Year Award for the sixth year in a row. Ladies and gentlemen, the winner of the Channel V Australian Artist of the Year Award is... Silverchair! Um, I guess... Um, the people we want to thank are our families, our um, management, our record company. Who else has written on that list? Um, our agent, um, the guys that do our, our website, and <laughs> I'm just going through it. Chris. I just want to say thanks to all those people that uh, voted for us again this year. It's, um, you know, it's a great award to win, and thanks very much. Thanks, um, do I need to lean in? Hello, hello. Um, yeah, this hasn't been our best year, but um, we're doing better than a lot of other Australians right now, so thanks. But the ARIA performance didn't mean that the band were back. Daniel still had a lot of physical therapy to complete. 
He even said on the day of the Aria's performance, he wasn't sure if his body would hold up through the song. Silverchair again needed to take a long break, Daniel included this time. It only lasted a few months, but it was something. Despite Daniel's arthritis, there were initially still plans to tour internationally for Diorama. Apparently there were even rehearsals with a guest guitarist in the hopes that Daniel would be well enough to sing, if not play guitar. I mean, for the first probably four months, I was pretty positive about it and saying, oh, it's going to be all right, it's going to be all right. Once it got to about the six-month mark, that was when um, there was no optimism left and I just thought, shit, it's over and I'm going to have to find something else to do. And I was trying to play piano and write on the piano and I couldn't turn my wrist that way, so I was playing one-handed. I was playing, I was writing, like, bass notes with this hand and I was doing the melodic notes with this hand and recording it all and seeing if that would work. And it didn't really work and then I was just thinking... This is disastrous. I'm going to have to just sing. I don't really want to be a singer. I wanted to play guitar. (laughs) Eventually, the band did get to tour in support of Diorama. Between March and June 2003, Silverchair toured Diorama on the Across the Night tour, whose hometown show in Newcastle became the Live from Faraway Stables live album and DVD set, which captures the concept of the performances, which was a two-act structure. Act one was the more ethereal orchestral songs, and then after a short interval, Act 2 was The Rock. By the end of that short but impactful promotional tour, 11 Australian shows plus a very small number of shows in the US, UK and South America, Silverchair first introduced the term indefinite hiatus to their vocabulary. Time has been kind to Diorama. At the time, some thought Silverchair's reach were exceeding their grasp, but the end product shows they were more than up to the task. In a retrospective look at Daniel John's entire discography for NME, past guest on this show Richard S. He says of Diorama, Diorama is a miracle. It's how it must feel to fly, to soar for the first time. It was the one time Daniel John's deliberately set out to craft a masterpiece and succeeded beyond anyone else's wildest dreams. He goes on to say, Diorama is a testament to the power of self-belief. Silverchair carved their own path, one that sounded like an impossible dream come true. Diorama isn't just John's magnum opus, but a work for all time. I tend to agree. One criticism you might lay at Diorama, and it is something I originally thought as well back in the day, was that there are clearly three or four big points on the album, Across the Night, Tuna in the Brine, and Love Your Life among them. And if you're not listening carefully, these can overshadow some of the more subtle work on the album. The album for me falls into a few different tiers. The hyper-orchestrated massive songs, Across the Night, Tuna in the Brine, Love Your Life, and I guess after all these years falls into this category for me as well. Then the dark, beautiful power ballads, World Upon Your Shoulders, My Favourite Thing, the off-kilter alt-rock, The Greatest View, Without You, Too Much of Not Enough, and the straight-up heavy, One Way Mule and The Lever. These tiers create a sound that varies quite a bit from song to song, and unlike Neon Ballroom, there isn't necessarily that consistency of sound. Now, Diorama is still my favourite Silverchair album, but even I admit that this variance from song to song initially put me off certain songs. Like I said, it took me years to get into One Way Mule. In 2002, I wanted Silverchair to be all across the night and leave any heavy stuff behind. I was on that side of it. Coming from a heavy metal background, I was fine with straight rock bands not trying to be heavy. At that point in my life, I probably would have said, don't even try and be heavy unless you're an extreme metal band. You know, if you're not like Strapping Young Lad or Meshuggah, just give me those gorgeous melodies and hooks. Growing up in a musical theatre household, I've always had those two poles to me. But you know what? These days, I think those contrasts in sounds and styles actually helps the album have more of a personality. You can't have 10 tuner in the brines on the album. It wouldn't be special. The fact that there is even one is astounding. And with the almost complete disappearance of rock music from the cultural landscape... I've come to really appreciate well-written, melodic, hard rock songs. And the fact that I can still be hearing new things in an album I've been listening to for two decades is testament to its staying power and genius. After Diorama, with the band on their first announced indefinite hiatus, it wasn't clear what the future would hold for Silverchair, or even if there was a future for Silverchair. It had only been eight years since the Tomorrow EP, but it felt like an entire lifetime. The next steps wouldn't be straightforward, but they did eventually lead back home. But that's for another episode of Too Much of Not Enough, a Sewer Chair podcast. Welcome to the 
This podcast is written, produced, and performed by me, Daniel Hedger. All Silverchair music is owned by Murmur and Eleven Music Publishers. A lot of the extra content from this episode comes from the Robert Hambling film Across the Night, The Creation of Diorama, and the SBS production Great Australian Albums Diorama, directed by Larry Meltzer. Furthermore, I encourage people to buy these films if you can find them. I would have included links to where these films are available, but surprise, surprise, these are more Silverchair-related things that seem to have been lost in the streaming age. That said, I believe I am using these resources as well as all music in compliance with copyright.com.au slash about copyright slash exceptions. Once again, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends or your enemies if they like Silverchair. Rate, review, subscribe, follow me on social, email me, you know how by now. See you next time. <laughs>